This episode of the Political Worldview podcast is funded by the University of Birmingham's Alumni Impact Fund. For more information on this and other projects, please visit birmingham.ac.uk forward slash alumni. Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, June 12th, 2017, the Losers Will Be Winners edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by Cristalia Kinthu, freshly returned from Tunisia, among other places, a Birmingham Research Fellow, looking tanned, rested, ready to go. How are you doing, Cristalia? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? How is everything over here? I hear that there's been chaos and... Uh frivolity. Well, I didn't realise that was still newsworthy internationally, if that was the condition of Britain. I think it's just like a standing notice at this point, but I'm, I'm pleased to hear it's still worthy of remark. Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm going to check the opinion polls and then I'll tell you whether or not I'm doing okay. But even that might not be an accurate prediction at right. this point. We're on a day-by-day Pretty much, yeah. basis as regards how we are. And we are also joined by Mark Goodwin, lecturer in British politics, UK politics expert, as that suggests, and at this point creeping up on equal co-host status, mm-hmm. I would suggest, in terms of time served. How are you doing, Mark? I'm all right, thanks, Adam. Yeah, although I, I think, you know, not too keen on this description as British politics expert because these days that just only ever comes in quotations. Yeah. Uh, preceded like this, by so-called. This is starting Twitter, to yeah. become... Michael Gove like started the ball rolling down the mountain. Yeah. Michael Gove, there's a name that's come arrived. back. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. Mm-hmm. We'll get to it. Our topic in this one big fat topic special edition, of course, an unexpected UK general election result burns Theresa May's political career to the ground, but she's still in Downing Street standing in the ashes, just. We talk about the result, what it means for who's in power and what's coming next. When UK Prime Minister Theresa May called a general election on April 19th, the world seemed to be at her feet. With unchallenged authority within the Conservative Party already established, the plan was to translate huge opinion poll leads into a stonking parliamentary majority and smash the Labour Party in the process. She'd then supposedly used this as a strong and stable base from which to negotiate the terms of Britain's exit from the European Union. What a difference seven weeks makes. When the country voted on June the 8th, the Tories lost seats and their majority. Labour, whose leader Jeremy Corbyn had been proclaimed unelectable by the Conservatives, the press and most of his own MPs, actually gained 30 seats, including some large and unexpected swings in the south of England. Jubilant supporters proclaimed this a vindication of his unabashedly anti-austerity policy platform and youth-targeted turnout strategy. Meanwhile, all three of the Conservatives, Labour and Liberal Democrats, regained ground in Scotland, where it became apparent the Scottish National Party had overplayed its hand, losing 20 seats. Notwithstanding universal agreement that Mrs May had lost all authority to lead, she claims to be staying for the time being, instantly racing to the palace after the result to seek reappointment from the Queen and sending her chief whip to negotiate support from the hardline Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland to prop up a minority government. The European governments with which Britain must now negotiate, meanwhile, looked on in subdued awe at our apparently limitless capacity for political slapstick at present in this country. So, Mark, 
Uh, yes. I turn to you first, as always, as the uh, the British political scientist in residence. Um, the oh-so-clever contrarian point uh, against the consensus of opinion at the moment uh, that I might make is that the Conservatives still got by far the largest share of seats and actually got a higher vote share at 42% than they have done for decades. Um, so it's not all bad for them. But that's nonsense, right? This is actually terrible for them. So explain for us why, despite getting more votes and seats than anyone else, this is being reported as so bad. Yeah, I, I would agree. That, that is nonsense. I mean, that is, you know, uh, an attempt to put, to polish something unpolishable. Um, so, and as far as Corbyn goes and the Labour Party, to say that they have not won is, is just to move the goalposts. Uh, a ridiculous amount. The claim against Corbyn was that he was going to destroy the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, often from people within his own party were claiming that. You know, when we first uh, discussed this after the election was called, I think we were talking about the, the, the uh, 1983 style result, which is, you know, the sort of synonymous with disaster for the Labour Party, would be actually all right. Mm-hmm. For for, uh, for Corbyn's Labour Party and somewhat of a vindication of Corbyn and Corbynism, uh, and they've done much much better than that. Gained seats, gained three and a half million uh, votes on uh, where they were before. Um, and there's there's I mean look at Corbyn's face <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> there's no way you can read this as anything other than a, a, a very significant victory, a triumph. For him, and it's disastrous for the Conservative Party. It's completely self-inflicted, um, uh, uh, complete own goal. There was no need for them to enter this campaign at all. It's blown up in their face, and there's no other spin that you can put on that that's realistic. Mm. I mean, the uh, the only person who looked happier, I think, than Jeremy Corbyn after all of this was George Osborne, uh, <laughs> yeah. who, famously, who was the uh, uh, the Chancellor and Chief Political Strategist under David Cameron's Conservative government uh, when... Theresa May became the leader of the party. She famously summarily fired him, uh, and then he left Parliament for lucrative alternative gigs in in, in a swift hurry. Uh, but you know, he and uh, I suppose he, as a proxy for others like him, is presumably absolutely yucking it up that someone who rode in on the premise that uh, her predecessors had been. Uh, incompetent losers for failing to secure a massive parliamentary majority has now staked everything on getting one and uh, well Egg is uh, the least of what she has on her face yeah yeah I imagine Cameron's probably laughing it up in his luxury shed or whatever that thing was as well yeah those those memoirs have just taken (laughs) (laughs) just added a new chapter I suspect but it's it's you know, when Theresa May eventually emerged from the sort of chaos that was the Conservative Party's leadership contest, one of the charges against her had been that she didn't have these sort of networks and allies and connections within the party, um, that she wasn't sort of, you know, clubbable in that way mm-hmm. that, and didn't have a sort of network of people around her. And, um, you know, that's something that makes her position even more difficult now you know that, that so many people have been alienated some of them perhaps unnecessarily um she didn't have all that many friends and allies to begin with yeah, her, her two top advisors uh, seem to have been uh, it was nick timothy and fiona hill oh, yeah. seem to have been 
absolutely despised by uh, by pretty much everybody uh, other than Theresa May within the Conservative Party. They've been ritually sacrificed over the course of the weekend as apparently a condition of her parliamentary party even considering her staying on. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's two elements to that probably. One being this idea that, you know, in the absence of having these kind of allies within the, with a party that Theresa May basically operated, you know, you might say in a sort of Tony Blair-style mm. way through this the very, very tight circle of advisors. Except he won the majority, yeah, therefore yeah. it was kind of okay. Um, and so, yeah, well, as long as you're winning, people are going to be, uh, might be annoyed by it, but they're not going to, it's, it's not going to go any further than that. And th- then, you know, which obviously is, uh, excludes certain people who want to be included. But then the other side of it is that, you know, Nick Timothy in particular, I think has, has taken the blame for the manifesto. Mm-hmm. Um and even, you know, he's been, well, how true this is, we don't really, we'll probably never know, but uh, the claim was that he was almost solely responsible for the pledge on social care, the so-called dementia tax, which the sort of disintegration of that uh, manifesto pledge, in a lot of ways, can be seen as the turning point in the campaign. So it, it, there's a couple of reasons why I think their positions have become very difficult, mm. Um Theresa May decided not to resign at least straight away. Somebody's, you know, someone's head was going to have to roll, and mm. uh, they're the first. They're probably not going to be the last. And I mean, when we come to try and explain why this happened, because it all fell apart for the Conservatives in a relatively short space of time, like, there was a reasonable argument for why she might want to call this election to cash in those opinion polls, and then something. Uh, like something changed, and the two things that, that 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 seem to have happened are: first of all, as Fintan O'Toole uh, put it in a very good article in the New York Review of Books, the, the Conservatives seem to have tried to build a cult of personality around someone who doesn't really have a personality to speak of, and as a result, the campaign laid bare that Theresa May just doesn't have the political chops to do this kind of thing. She ducked out of the debates when she was subjected to scrutiny. Um, She looked very flaky indeed. Her ability to perform was not strong. And then that rollback on a headline pledge within the within the manifesto in the full glare of, of public scrutiny, you know, their whole pitch was, we're competent people Mm. we know how to run things and check out these jokers on the other side who don't um that sort of became emblematic of the fact that the labor party had this reasonably costed kind of specific manifesto and the conservatives just had this um uh poorly thrown together uh half-baked Word document and the few specifics in it fell apart as soon as anyone started asking difficult questions. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair analysis of, of, of what happened. I mean, it's, I think, up to a point, that narrative, Theresa May is competent, you know, and, and therefore the Conservative Party is competent, Theresa May is serious, Theresa May doesn't mis- make mistakes, is reasonable, was kind of working as far as the day job goes. Mm. And I think, you know, Whatever, you know, there is going to be a certain amount of, of revision about how people have regarded Corbyn. But the fact is that in terms of the day job, Theresa May had been performing much, much better uh, than Corbyn. It's only at the point where it turned into an election campaign that mm-hmm. things started to turn around, which is, you know, we see he, he's enjoyed that far more. Uh, the uh, ability to shift the agenda onto policy rather than, than competence 
was seized uh, very effectively. Uh, and Theresa May seemed to hate every minute of it, even while they were doing quite well. I mean, yeah. it, it exposed all of her flaws, um, uh, cleared the way for Corbyn to do the, what he likes doing, mm-hmm. um, and the, the wider sort of Corbyn movement to be sort of activated. Um, and that's the point that it, it really turned around. I think Theresa May is, is, in a lot of ways, quite good at the day job of being a Prime Minister. You know, being a sort of statesman-like figure and doing these formal um, uh, parts of the job, you know, the day-to-day management, all that kind of thing. And and I think Jeremy Corbyn has been quite bad at those things. He's been a bad party manager. Mm. He's been a bad parliamentarian. He's been a bad leader of the opposition. He's been bad with the media. Mm. Um, Until this election campaign kicked in. Mm. And, you know, again, you, you, you saw him him... For as much as Theresa May hated it, he was enjoying it. I don't think Theresa May is particularly a great policy brain either. Mm. Um, and it just seemed, as a lot of people have said about a lot of elections recently, that there was one side that had something, one mm. side that had nothing, <laughs> one side that had a cause, and one side that had, had no cause. Mm. Uh, and it went the same way as it's gone every other time, those yeah. two things. Yeah, I mean, like, there, there will be people who no doubt say... Like it was a terrible mistake for Theresa May not to do the debates. That made her look weak. Uh, it gave, essentially, away the game of of competing on the grounds of leadership. But then again, you know, the reason they didn't subject her to that is because they thought she would be really bad at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, who's to say that if she had done it, it wouldn't have made things worse? But really, that what that flags up is that if you can't be trusted as the prime minister to debate your primary opponent and at least not make things worse in the course of that, then maybe this is not the job for you. Like if you just if you're good at public administration but can't publicly debate issues in a way that appeals to the public, like have you considered a career in the senior civil service? <laughs> yeah. You know, this is this is probably not. Um, not going to work out well for you and uh, the idea that people believed for so long that it would maybe maybe shows something about the very particular oddities of the current British context. I think you have to give some credit to um, Corbyn and his organisation and advisors for, for that as well. Um, I think it's a combination of the two things that you know May and the Conservatives ran an awful campaign but you do have to give credit where it's due and that decision to take part in one of the debates at the 11th hour um, having previously said he wasn't going to take mm. part, it now looks like a, a really, really astute move and exactly the kind of thing mm. that people have been criticising Corbyn have uh, said he can't do and he's incapable of even seeing that there's an opportunity there. Um, and on that occasion, he, he grasped it. And I think it, it's, you know, how much these things affect the overall outcome, uh, you know, is very hard to judge. But... It kind of it kind of done anything but help him, and yeah. it kind of done anything but hurt Theresa May. I'm conscious we've been having a bit of a back and forth here, Mark, but I sense there will be others in this uh, pod who have views. Uh, I was going to go to Cristala, but Scott just breathed in with <laughs> such intent that I think I am going to go to him first. No, Cristala, cool your jets. It, it, I mean, it's 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 a it's breaths of confusion here, despite Mark's clarity on this. Um, it's not your fault, Mark. No, yeah, good. Uh, I guess because well, a couple things to put in the mix. Then I mean, the first is that I'd like to take this beyond Theresa May. Uh, 
to the Conservative Party because what strikes me was the absence in the broader party line of the messages that they have usually come up with, which is economic competence, reassurances in terms of you know London's financial strength, the ability to deliver services, um, albeit with questions as to how much they're eroding them. You know, and that line of competence didn't come forth this time. And so I said, well, that's a real mistake. And I'm wondering about something wider, and that is they couldn't mm. put out that message of competence because of Brexit. Mm-hmm. They know that Britain's going to come in economic cropper fairly soon, um, whether or not it's before or after departure from the EU. So to deliver that idea of managing stability was just going to be a pipe dream. And far from therefore being overconfident, I think, in this campaign, I think they were trying to cover up weakness. That's the first thing. And then on the other side, what adds to my uncertainty is, and I agree with you on the the starting point, which is, is that, you know, Corbyn's political fortunes have been revived by this. Labor can breathe again that it is, you know, part of the mainstream British scene. But um, it's still only a net gain of 29 seats. Now, why do I mention that? Well, to gain an absolute majority, unless you change this this screwed up British electoral system, they've got to gain another 65 seats from somewhere, which brings back to my mind, no matter how much you say there's a labor revival, 40% in this election, how much more would they have to gain? And if the SNP continues to be a force in Scotland, which I think it will be, uh, where do they grab those seats from? Which brings me to my third very provocative point, because I I said going through this campaign, I thought the two-party system in Britain was actually dying. And that's been countered immediately by our colleagues, David Cutts and Tim Houghton, who said, well, more than 80% of the vote went to conservative and labor. That shows the resurgence of the two-party system. And I don't necessarily buy that. I don't buy that there is now a stable base for either the Tories or Labor in terms of what they generally have offered people. Um, No matter how much Labor may have rescued itself, I think both parties have got fundamental weaknesses, which Brexit will only magnify. And so I do put the question back to all of you whether this is merely just rocking the boat a little bit or whether we are in the middle of... uh, uh, we aren't supposed to talk about seismic shifts, are we, today? But whether we are in the middle of, of what will be ongoing um, turbulence in terms of this British system that has existed pretty well for yeah. decades. Well, I mean, what those who are inside the Labour Party's kind of leadership hub, I guess, would, would say uh, is that they have saved the Labour Party in many ways by what they've done. That if you look at what the, 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 the phrase that does the rounds on the in that part of the left is pasokification, which is a reference to the Greek Labour Party, right? This idea that, um, or the Greek Socialist Party, that what happened to them was they essentially lost popular support um, but could not be taken over by the left. They therefore remained as a kind of shell, losing support terribly. The hard left party that came up on the other side uh, to try and eat their lunch was in many ways 
more brittle and less stable a political entity as a result of not having the kind of embedding in communities and, and structures that the party did. And in Britain, we would have ended up with something similar if Jeremy Corbyn hadn't taken over the party, that the party, the Labour Party would have stayed as this kind of centrist entity, hemorrhaging support. It would have been challenged by a, by a, by a hard left party that would get votes but not have a realistic chance of power, and therefore the left would would die on its arse, basically. What they have done by taking the Labour Party to the left is save the institution and therefore the electoral viability of the left. Now, that's all a rosy story premised on the fact that this election happened to turn out the way it did. You could have a very, very different story. But the, the, need, to, the need and the interest of the left in breaking the two-party system is not there now, I guess, would be, would be their analysis. Is, it, is that really the case, though? Is it just that this election has kind of put a, a wound over that, kind of put a Band-Aid over the Labour Party for a little bit longer? I don't know. The, within the anti-Corbyn part of the party, OK, yes, they've been made to kind of be quiet for a while, but I really wonder for how long and what what is going to happen in terms of those tensions within the Labour Party over the kind of medium term. And I'm inclined to agree with to agree with Scott, not just for the broader brushstrokes, but I think Labour also needs to confront some pretty pretty um, uh, fundamental internal kind of aspects. And in some ways the the catastrophe that Adam just described may have may have slowed things down rather than keeping them together or making them more cohesive. Mm-hmm. I, d- I tend to agree that it, it's this is not a new equilibrium or anything like that. I think it, it's the, the current uh, point that we're at in British politics is still very fragile. It's still likely to go off in unexpected directions at any given time, not you know, least because we're about to embark on this process of Brexit, which is going to stress test all of this, you know, very probably like to destruction. Um, I think, you know, I take that that point, I think is really um, sort of correct uh, uh, that, you know, Labour does seem to have these structural difficulties. Um, you know, the division in its base, we, you know, it's going to take a, a while before we really know who's changed their votes and why. Mm. So I think, you know, anybody who's talking about that with, with any confidence at the moment shouldn't be. But the divide in the Labour base between, you know, a sort of uh, middle class, um, cosmopolitan, wine drinkers and the traditional Labour beer drinking vote, OK, uh, is still there and it's still difficult to reconcile. Uh, I'm not seeing anything in this result so far that makes me think they've found a perfect solution for that. Um, it has other cephalogical problems, the kind of thing you're talking about, Scott. Where do they get these extra seats from if they're, gonna, if they're serious about forming a majority government? Scotland is its own political system completely now. Um, uh, you know, they had a completely different election to England and Wales on Thursday. Um, so it's not clear that that's necessarily available to Labour and a lot of this seems again, it's too early to say this with any confidence but a lot of it seems to be uh, driven by the addition of lots and lots of new voters in a demographic that tends not to vote very often Uh, and uh, you know, you may see something like in the next time something like happened with the Obama coalition, that it it, it turns out to be less, you know, not very stable Mm -hmm. 
um, uh, and could sort of disintegrate as quickly as it's arisen. Which, which also begs uh, the question: like, is it turning out for the Labour Party or is it turning out for him? Mm. And even if someone else runs on a very similar manifesto, and to be fair, this manifesto wasn't a million miles from what Ed Miliband ran on, then you know you, you might get a very different r- result. I, I've got to say, I don't buy the argument that you get this result with anybody but Corbyn. I know I've been slagging him off on this podcast and, and you know in, in, in other places as well, but. I don't accept the claim that some people are coming out with, okay, this is despite Corbyn, rather yeah. than because <laughs> of him. There was some Blairite guy, <laughs> yeah. I forget his name now, who said that in The Guardian this morning, uh, to which all I can say is poofed. Yeah. <laughs> and like all the poofed in the world is merited for that, that, that just like trollish, ridiculous position-taking exercise. Yeah, it's, well, they've, they, you know, they've been, it's very embarrassing, I think, to a lot of people mm. who, who have really... Uh, been very vocal about criticising the whole Corbyn project as this, this sort of ludicrous thing that's going to you know drive the, the Labour Party to the position of PASOK or, the, or you know where the French socialists are or whatever it is. So you know it's a bit of face saving, I suppose, because it, because it, it is embarrassing um, mm. to some of those people. It, how they respond to it now, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, for some people, their main criticism of you know the sort of moderates within the Labour Party or the you know. The, the, uh, people who are not on board with the Corbyn project anyway, how they're going to react. Depends how much their objection to Corbyn was about his supposed, uh, you know, it, the impossibility of him being elected. Mm. Um, and how much of it was about all the other things that Corbyn has been criticised for, um, uh, you know, and even, you know, <laughs> the policy as well. But actually, as you say, the manifesto seemed to be a little bit more of a compromise on some areas, Trident being the most obvious, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, with other sort of sections of the Labour Party. So maybe, you know, um, there's a solution there where if you, if you, you can get over now the idea that he, he's going to destroy the party, and uh, mm-hmm. I think you'll start seeing a lot of those people t- coming back together. I mean, during the election campaign, there, was, there wasn't a great deal of sniping against Corbyn, even when he was doing badly. Mm. Uh, according to polling. So it seems that, that perhaps the Labour Party's got over that, at least for the moment. I mean, Stephen Bush, the new statesman, who tends to be my go-to person for like what is happening uh, within, within its uh, structures and strategies, his analysis is that next time round, like the map that they will be working with to try and build and expand their number of seats will be much, much better than what Ed Miliband's legacy was was to his successor but one of the the challenges will be messaging that like at this time round a lot of people love Jeremy Corbyn although that youth vote turned out specifically because of him at the same time stone cold fact is that a lot a lot of Labour MPs were going around their constituencies with their main message being it's okay to vote for me because this guy's my leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is never going to be prime minister. That's not a thing. Don't worry about it. Re-elect me, strong Labour opposition. Um, they're not going to be able to say that next time, um, even if they want to. So it will be interesting to see, um, you know, how many of those MPs are enthusiastic about actually saying vote for me to get a Jeremy Corbyn government, and how many of their voters will buy that message as readily as they bought pretty much the opposite this time. Yeah, that's difficult. I mean, I think the manifesto, one of the good, the, the, uh, from the Labour point of view, good things about that manifesto was that it gave 
those Labour MPs who were not necessarily on board with Corbyn something to talk about on the mm. doorstep. Uh, and also, you know, the idea that you were voting for Jeremy Corbyn as a potential Prime Minister um, was not seemed to be like a plausible problem, um, which I suppose is what you'd have to put in front of people next time. And, you know, some critics uh, would say, well, the Labour manifesto was a wish list um, that was not really a serious programme for government. It was uh, a sort of uh, expression of ideals or something like that, rather than a serious worked out uh, set of policy proposals. And the more you move towards that, the more you dissipate the enthusiasm that's been behind um, Corbyn and the Corbyn project, the more you have to make those compromises in order to actually put together a governing programme, um, the, the less that thing that drove you to this point is, is, is going to sort of stay in place. So that, there are, it's not all good news looking forwards, but uh, from where many people in the Labour Party and in British politics were expecting them to be, you know, I don't think they're going to be worrying about that too much just at this point because they've exceeded all expectation. I Let me put this to you because I think there's so many mixed messages or uncertain messages about why people turned out and voted the way they did, whether it was a positive vote for Corbyn or for Labour or whether it was a vote against the Tories. I mean, to give you one example, um, it just so happens that my son is at Bath, uh, at Bath University there. And there was a huge turnout there, but of course that was for the Lib Dems, who romped home with a substantial majority and took the seat from the Conservatives. So there was sort of a sentiment there that they were mobilizing tactically. The Lib Dems were stronger than Labor, so they did. In other, and I think that may have happened in other constituencies as well. Here's my question. Um, I'm not so sure that, that the game of labeling Corbyn uh, as either good guy or bad guy is the one that is the dynamic now. And I don't think Labor could have put anyone in Corbyn's place, but I do think it was this. It struck me that in the final weeks of this election, this came down to a public services election, whether it be education, whether it be delivery of pensions, whether it be social care, um, whether it be the fate of the NHS. And the Conservatives, quite frankly, dropped the ball on this for a number of reasons we could talk about. And Labor was now back in a position that they probably haven't that they finally got back to in the 1990s where we weren't talking about ideology and reds under the bed, but whether they could be trusted with those public services, which is what brought the, the Blair years in. So I guess my takeaway from this is, is if Labor can deal with that competence factor, that they can deliver the services, not bankrupt the country, but give more assurances that we are able to get care when we need it, that we have something in our old age, that would seem to be the way forward logically. I'm wondering if that resonates with any of you all. Well, I think it's, you know, as, I think there's probably a lot in that, um, that it was not expected that that's what the um, election was going to be about, that you thought domestic policy was, was going to be decisive. But I think, you know, again, one of the things you have to credit um, the Corbyn campaign for is shifting the agenda onto exactly those subjects, which is what they wanted to talk about. That's the, the manifesto and the ideas that Jeremy Corbyn has waited his whole political career to stand on. Um, and they are the solutions that 
you know, the Labour Party and the Labour movement came up with 40 years ago. But he, Corbyn's, you know, pitch is that he still thinks those ideas are, are, are valid. I mean, help, helped a little bit by by the Conservatives again in the sense that this was supposed to be the Brexit election in which Theresa May could secure a whopping mandate for her plan for Brexit which was signally hindered by the fact that when the campaign started, she was asked, yeah. so what is your plan for yeah. Brexit that you want a mandate for? There strong was not, there and stable. Was, there, there, there yeah. was strong and stable. So like, you can't have an election campaign that centres on seeking a mandate for a plan you don't have and won't articulate. Well, neither side had any incentive to talk about it. No. Neither side had any incentive to talk about Brexit or immigration, for that matter. You know, because... Um, you know, from the Labour Party's perspective, that's an extremely difficult area. They, they don't know what their strategy is on immigration. From the Conservative point of view, you know, uh, they can't go all the way um, with a sort of UKIP-style uh, approach to immigration um, because that's that, again, gets at a division that's within that party and also, the, you know... They understand that that's not economically kind of available. But, I mean, I mean, they've already managed to really tie a tourniquet on it to a surprising extent, mm. right? Like in the sense yeah. that Jeremy Corbyn is saying, we're going to leave the EU, they're going to impose controls on immigration, they're saying, they, they, John McDonald's saying they'll leave the common market. None of these, they, all these things that all those young voters who mm. love Jeremy Corbyn absolutely don't want, but somehow... Whether because uh, you know they have other priorities or they just trust in him that he doesn't really mean it and they'll try and do something else if they get elected, they seem to have turned up in their droves to vote for him regardless of that fact. At the same time as presumably whoever was comforted by those messages also received and understood and voted on the basis of them. Uh, I uh, Talking about the Conservative Party, I wanted to shift us to the Conservatives and the DUP mm. um, and and talk about that. What? What? Uh, how? You, you, you are the most recently arrived to our shores, Cristela. So I'm if, the if most I might confused. Ask, right, if, if, if I might ask, to what extent were you at any point previously familiar with the Democratic Unionist well, Party? And now that you're learning about them, what are your feelings? I knew. I have many feelings about this. So many feelings. Um, I did know that the caveat is that I did know about them because of the Northern Irish situation. Um, so it had been signalled to me way, way before, uh, which increased my alarm um, significantly. Maybe if I knew less, I would have been less worried. Um, right, because you had all those infographics saying, like, so who are the DUP yeah, well, on the headlines? You're like, well... Baby, it's <laughs> a lot worse Britain, than that, my yeah, friend. I don't think yeah. you're going to like the answer when you find yes. out. So, I mean, what is there? There are lots of questions, not just how and why, but also I know everyone is calling themselves a Northern Irish expert these days, but if we can pretend to be Northern Irish experts for a moment or not... What does it mean at this time in Northern Ireland? And well, how does that reflect? That? I always tell the students when I'm doing courses in British politics, I'm not going to mention the words Northern Ireland <laughs> because it's it's a, such a different system. Northern Irish politics is so completely separate from the politics of uh, yeah, you know, the rest of the UK. Yeah, but it's been brought in uh, Yeah, firmly. well, exactly. It, it is was already now. creeping back in so, because of Brexit, yeah. Yeah. because we yeah. had this live issue suddenly yeah. about whether there'd be a hard border. Mm-hmm. Now, suddenly, mm-hmm. one of the participants in that the, the, the toxic dialogues that they specialise in over there is going to be propping up the government. But I think, in the, I know a lot of people will look at the positions that the DUP holds on... Uh, social matters around, uh, you know, gay rights and abortion and, and be very concerned uh, because that is not in line with the 
the, the kind of views that prevail in, in, the, in the rest of um, uh, uh, Britain. But I suspect that those things are not going to be that big of a deal. Uh, uh, the key issue, surely, for the DUP, and it's it's difficult when you're dealing with people who, in part, their politics is driven by religious conviction, because they can always do something that that, that you know, perhaps uh, in the name of that conviction, that doesn't seem that um, uh, rational. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a good job we're not expecting a visit from the Pope anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, there'd be a veto yeah. coming right in on that invitation. But I think the. the, the Surely their priority has got to be the border issue mm-hmm. um, uh, in uh, Brexit. And, and, you know, they've already got restriction on abortion in Northern Ireland. They've already got restriction on uh, marriage equality. So why they would try and, you know, uh, pursue it <laughs> for the rest of the UK doesn't seem like a sensible thing for them to be prioritising yeah. when they have this material issue that is uh, c- crucially important to the future of Northern Ireland... Um, and that, if I was in their uh, position, would be the thing I would be talking about. And then maybe, you know, they want a bit of pork barrel for Northern Ireland stuff. But Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm I'm the other kind of Irish, uh, but, but that does mean I've had them on my horizon for a little bit longer than than maybe some. And I agree entirely. Like The idea that their number one priority would be like some theological fight about English social policy is just uh, it misconceives how hard-nosed this, this movement is they'll want they'll, they'll have that that border issue in mind and they will just have a wish list of stuff that sacks of cash uh, will need to be shipped out for probably on a vote by vote in Westminster basis uh, they you know they're a little bit like uh, uh, you know American Republicans, I would think, in some ways, and there's this ability to compartmentalize some hardline religious stances on social policy with some very, very pragmatic thinking when it comes and to the, other And interests. they're by no means kind of fiscal conservatives uh, in, this, in this, the same way that they're kind of. Uh, well, let, let's, take it, part, let's take it point by point and then get to the really, <laughs> really destabilizing stuff. I fully agree with you. The social issues, although they're troubling to me personally, are not going to be the rocky ones. Um, I think, at the same time, they open up to wider issues, which hits, Mark hit it absolutely right. You're welding together two different systems with this connection of unionism, and that has been the problem for centuries, let alone in the past week here. So what does it mean if you get beyond the social issues? First, DUP is going to ask for a lot of money. They're going to ask for a huge amount of money because Northern Ireland, uh, which has perhaps the most serious economic situation in the United Kingdom throughout, depends a lot on European Union money, and they're going to want a safety net to guard against that. That is in combination with the border issue, which means even though we hear on the surface that DUP are hardline Brexit, like uh, the conservative government is, it's mitigated by that because already the stories are out, but we still want to be part of the customs union so we don't have to check every you know every lorry crossing the border between the south and the north. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be built, played out. But then for me, here's the really big one. Um, the tail may be wagging the dog uh, for the moment with the strength of the DUP, but that still means the fundamental in Northern Ireland is that not only have you had a fragile, fragile power-sharing agreement less than 20 years after Good Friday, it isn't even a power-sharing agreement right now. Governance has been suspended in the north, um, catalyzed by the issue of the finances over the renewable energy program. 
uh, Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP, who is now being courted by the conservatives, was in serious political trouble. The first time, watch this space, if this coalition survives, or not coalition, agreement survives, I'm not sure it will, the first time that the DUP tried to use that agreement to tip negotiations on Northern Irish politics, mm -hmm. either one, to retain power, two, to alter the power-sharing agreement, Sinn Féin, who did extremely well as well, are going to be mobilizing their folks on the grassroots, and there's going to be all hell to pay in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the return of the Troubles, but I'm talking about a serious situation in terms of there will be no political stability in terms of day-to-day -day running of the North, mm -hmm. which will then further corrode things both in Northern Ireland and then in terms of the center of power in London. I mean, there is a certain irony in, in the fact that like an election campaign that was weirdly fixated on one of the party leaders' relations with a Northern Irish political party, which is to say Jeremy Corbyn's, um, you know, I would actually say legitimately pretty dubious relations with Sinn Féin during the course of the 1980s. I mean, it's not really, a, I don't think it should be on the top 100 issues in 2017, but I, I do think there are some reasonable questions to be asked about Jeremy Corbyn's position on the IRA. But still, it's, re, it's, it's interesting that, uh, uh, that after all of that talk, it turns out to be uh, the other side of that equation, the hardline religious unionists that are, that are going to prop up the, the resulting government. Are you going to go all the way and say that Therefore, the relationship of the DUP with, say, the Ulster Defense Association, mm -hmm. the UDA, should be brought up there? Because that... Well, it's, I mean, it's not quite the same in the sense that Sinn Féin existed yeah. uh, to be the political party providing a front for the terrorist movement, yeah. the IRA. Loyalist terrorism was a kind of separate thing, but for obvious ideological reasons, they overlap somewhat with the DUP, and therefore you could accuse them of being... The DUP was never at any point the front organization no. for loyalist terrorism, so it is a little different. But no. still, it's weird. That's what I'm saying, I guess, no. to get into this. But it's still, you know, you look at the way the Conservative Party has developed over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years. You know, it's Theresa May who came out with this idea that our problem is we're seen as a nasty party. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, here's really, my really five-point strategy here's my, that here's my legacy to you. Yeah, bring back fox hunting, uh, well, yeah. go into alliance <laughs> with the DUP, and those pensioners look a, a little bit too warm. Let's get rid of their winter fuel allowance. And, you know, so that detoxification strategy is just out the window now. Right, isn't it? the brand is re-rancified. Speaking of that, who's standing behind her? Who are the likely candidates in the in the Conservative Party to take her place? Well, first if of all, slash when? First of all, are we all agreeing that May is gone sooner rather than later? Well, I don't know. She talked to the complete Nothing would surprise outsider. me anymore. I'm not making predictions now or ever again. I predict I will never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Make a prediction. So. Uh, it, it's, it seems like that position is not tenable, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. But who knows? Loads of things happen in British politics where you think this situation is totally untenable and then it goes on for 150 years. Well, they're saying, they're saying, they're saying today <laughs> in the news... Uh, that the Queen's speech, which is supposed to be delivered uh, like whenever the 19th, um, which is the, the outlining of the legislative program for the year, may need to be postponed for like some cockamamie reason. It, it sounds, I was saying it reminds me of um, like when a, 
uh, a business that you're dealing with like tells you that the check is in the post <laughs> and by the way uh, they can't take cards anymore because the, the machine is broken only cash and, and whatever like it has that um, the, the last desperate shuffling of today. paper <laughs> things yeah like there's clearly a frantic exercise going on behind the yeah. scenes to work out if if this um contraption that they're trying to put together can fly at all even if badly i mean i think may's gone soon so i'm going to start off and, and put that mess i mean i've mi- missed a lot of predictions in the last couple of years but i think that one's a, but i do then come back to Cristal's point which is um who then steps up to say i'm going to have a go at this boris has been pretty quiet uh, they've put it's out been the, noisily quiet yes. in a weird way that politicians sometimes are. Like, like people, they, Just letting like, them know like, that like they're in leak, the background. Yeah, like a leak of a WhatsApp group discussion in which he said, oh, Theresa May, she's amazing. Stop destabilizing. <laughs> it's like, who? Like, <laughs> the idea that she wrote that for any reason other than to have it read out in the newspapers yeah. is laughable. Well, so if, he's performing quietness. If you want to talk about conservative criminology, they've released the photograph from the cabinet meeting which took place a few hours before we started recording this. Did you say conservative criminal criminology, right? Okay. And there's Teresa not, sitting Not conservative there. criminology. That was what <laughs> I had... Which, would be, uh, that, <laughs> which is an important moving, uh, but distinct swiftly. disciplinary pursuit. <laughs> that might be... Well, it may be in play here. I'll tell you, use both meanings of the word, because there's Teresa May, Teresa May trying to pretend everything's okay, and who's right there to her left, sitting there smiling, you know, <laughs> with the, the blonde hair flopping about Boris, right? Mm-hmm. Now... I had it put to me by someone who's pretty good at reading these events. He said, the Tories have got a problem here. So he says, do you go for the person who might have the electoral appeal, which he thought was Boris, uh, for better or worse, or do you go for the person who's the pragmatist, who can actually deal with the serious issues it's facing? Because what he then went on to say is, if you can imagine Boris stepping in and then negotiating with the Europeans, who despise him, and trying to hold everything together domestically. So my gut instinct at that point was is that when the Tories have really, really been in trouble, they've gone to the pragmatist. Mm-hmm. They went to the pragmatist in 92 with Major. Um, they went pragmatic with Osborne in 2010, even though <laughs> look where that got us now. But I don't know who that figure is mm-hmm. that they go to. It's, in terms of getting rid of Theresa May, you know, there's just a lot of in a lot of ways, it looks quite easy. You know, they've run mm. this highly personalised campaign. Mm. The decision to hold the election could be hung round her neck. Uh, she was a Remainer anyway. She yeah. never really believed in any of this. Um, and she just kind of fluked her way through the leadership contest. And you can... You can yeah, she was like Mr Pink in Reservoir Dogs, basically. Yeah. Everyone shot everybody yeah. else, but yeah. she came out from under yeah. the stairs. And, and, you know, you can personalise it and say, well, this was... It was all on her, right. but it's. I think that's that's the right question to ask. Is where, where do you go from there? Um, I think that problem is electoral, right? That they, you can't have an election, especially not one like this, and then have the result, and then immediately defenestrate the leader, slot in a different one, and then just have them govern as prime minister as though that's like normal and fine and legitimate. As soon as she goes it becomes necessary at the first possible opportunity to have another election in which whoever that new leader is campaigns to be in charge. At, at least as of right now, I don't think the Conservatives are super confident that such an election would make their situation better rather than worse. So 
Like, I think if they could just get rid of her and have whoever her replacement is crack on as PM, they would do it tomorrow. Mm. But they, mm. th- their calculation has to be when are we ready to rerun that election and only when that time comes or at least is, is, is definable will mm. it be safe for them to, to break glass. But it's not, it's not straightforward at all. You know, people seem to be assuming that this is going to work in the way that there will, there will, there's bound to be another election in a few months. But with the way the process works now... It's it's not as simple as that, yeah. you know. So it, it's you need a lot of people who might lose their seats to vote for it. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of not in anyone's interest, really, to have it uh, from one point of view. Um, conservatives certainly are not going to be racing to go into another um, election where they might, you know, you might get a nineteen seventy four type situation where people think, okay, you had your turn at it, and we're now going to elect a. Uh, a different government so I don't think anyone there is going to be racing uh, to go through with it uh, and you know fix term parliaments out there's certain mechanisms you have to to go through that sounds like the two of you are leaning towards may staying for for a while at least I mean I mean the talk uh, you know if you listen to say uh, Robert Peston who seems to have his sources in the mm-hmm. Conservative Party is that they want to try and string this out for somewhere between six months and a year yeah uh, while the talk, while the alternative conservative leaders work out what their yeah. program is, because anyone who gets in suddenly just has this dystopian yeah. swamp of yeah. unsolvable policy positions, mm-hmm. no majority to work with, and the only way of getting around that is to have an election you might not win. So, like, I think people just need more time, if any, if nothing else, to think through what their plan actually is. I think that's a shrewd reading. I, I would have said, in normal politics, she would be gone sooner. But I think the fact that they're going to be looking for a successor who has some sense of what he or she wants to do, plus further complications, Amber Rudd, who did quite well mm-hmm. playing a bad hand, stepping in mm-hmm. for the debate that may women tend to. The problem is she's in a marginal seat mm-hmm. and barely held on to it. Mm-hmm. So that rules her out as like the, the person you put in. But then let me just add one more complication to that. While they're playing for six to 12 months, and I'm not sure even – the London chattering media have picked up on this yet. In an election where, for what it was worth, hard Brexit was either not the main issue or was dismissed by the voters, you now have a cabinet which is stronger in terms of hard Brexiteers who are within it because Boris Johnson is still there, Liam Fox is still there, David Davis is still there and very, very loud, and now she's brought Michael Gove back in. So all the notorious gang who are responsible for getting them into this mess are on the inside rather than the outside of the cabinet, mm. which raises all kinds of questions of how much they could skew things with it, even within the next few months. And also, like, lest we forget, yeah. while, it makes, while it makes great sense to have you know, a Potemkin government put up to tide things over for six to 12 months for the purposes of sorting out the Conservative Party's internal politics... The Article 50 clock to Britain's exit to the European Union is still ticking throughout all of that. So a government with no authority and no real basis for negotiating is either going to do or not do during that period. And by the time a new thing comes into place, it's probably going to be too late to, to get going in all sorts of ways. So like, once again, like item number 135 on the list of ways in which the British national interest is basically being held hostage to the conveniences of the Conservative Party's internal politics, which is just nightmarishly frustrating. The, 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 the point you make, Scott, is they've, just, they've committed way too hard, yeah. the whole Conservative Party, to the idea 
that uh, you know the authentic will of the people has finally been revealed and you know by the uh, EU referendum and now this is this is the way British politics is going to be from now on I think if, if there's anything people should take out of this election and probably the last three or four years of British politics uh, it, there's no such thing as the will of the people there's no such thing as the people um, it, you're talking about a country of 65 million uh, and there are many things going on at once and pluralism is not a bad thing to have and democracy is supposed to be a way of reconciling competing interests and the way that people have uh, just completely jumped in both feet to this idea the will of the people is something to do with this kind of extreme version of Brexit um, uh, and that's settled now for all time um, anybody who voted against it is going to just immediately curl up and die or be crushed like the saboteurs and enemies of the people that they are it, it's, it's just not what a liberal democracy is about uh, did, did they do that or did they miscalculate and the reason why I ask is this mm. it strikes me that there was uh, a mistaken calculation here which is the Tories we're thinking, well, Labour isn't that strong. They're divided. What we're going to do is, is we're going to outflank UKIP and finally get rid of these irritating people to our right. Mm -hmm. So we'll go with the hard Brexit line, crush UKIP, knock them out, which therefore puts us in a much better position at the next election down the line. Is, is that possible here? Well, that's what they thought was going to happen. That's what they thought. Yeah, I, I think they thought they were going to completely cannibalise the UKIP vote, get yeah. all of it. Um, and that would be enough to, to make serious inroads into the, the Labour Heartless. None of that happened. Absolutely none of that happened. Um, so, you know, in terms of inroads into well, the Labour Heartless, they got a lot of the UKIP vote. to quickly knock France out of the war and then go to Russia. Before we know where we are, uh, <laughs> everything's worked but, but I think possibly, and again, look, like I said, I don't want to be here saying with, with kind of overconfidence what explains the result, because... My whole point is there are many different things going on. There is more than one dynamic. There is a pluralism and, and difference in the country, and, uh, uh, and it's not going to be fit into one narrative. But the gamble, I suppose, if it is a gamble, or the belief, I don't think they thought it was a gamble at the time, no. was that this 52% means the strongest version of Brexit imaginable, immigration control... Um, that's what people are into now. Okay, the, that whole austerity thing that people liked for a year—that's gone. <laughs> that's not what British politics is about anymore. Now it's all about uh, immigration and a, a culture war. Okay, and now it's 2017, and it turns out it's not that either. And if anybody can tell me the coherent will of the people that emerges from those last three big votes in Britain, I would love to hear it because I don't think there is a story that makes sense of all of them at the same time and everything that happened on Thursday. Uh, and I think the, the more people are able to accept that you're going to get different kinds of dynamic and different patterns of voting behaviour across Britain, um, the better, you know. Let me throw something else in here, and that is, you know, we've talked Conservative, we talked Labour, uh, I assume we're going to leave the SNP for another podcast where Scotland will get its full space. But Lib Dems, very disappointing result for them. I mean, they did have a small gain in seats, but they would have hoped for more. Uh, what's the future there? Are we back? You know, I have actually argued against the two-party system, but we have talked mainly about the two parties. Is there space for the Lib Dems to make it a three-party race or in the near future? Aren't they going through an internal kind of what are they doing, a review of, of 
where the party is at and how to how to refresh it. I hope so. <laughs> no, no, there's a for, there is some formal it. report going on now that's led by John Aldadice, I think, that's some revision of, of where things stand and how to how to reassess. Well, look, in, in some ways, you can look at that result and think it's not that bad. You know, in terms of uh, vote share, they've stayed about the same, but it's been quite efficiently distributed. They gained a few seats. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, there's you could plausibly have, have seen them losing, even from the, the, the terrible position they were already in. I mean, Tim Farron nearly lost his seat. Mm. You know, only about 700 votes in it. Um, I, you know, they're... They're a bit of a marginal force now, aren't they? I mean, the, the kind of places that they won uh, were places that had been Lib Dem seats before. Um, it's not as if there was any, you know, um, that uh, positioning as a Remain party didn't seem to, you know, particularly work. But part, that's partly because Labour seemed to be the main beneficiary of that. Mm. That it, even though Labour is yeah, not committed to remain, weird, isn't it? but that they but seem to, to have, 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 have benefited from from whatever kind of uh, backlash there was, mm. uh, and kind of remain seats seem to have swung quite hard to Labour. So you know, people were talking at the outset about a kind of progressive alliance. In some ways, it happened, mm. but it was just all within the Labour Party. It wasn't tactical votes, which in particular, except outside a few seats. Um, but it seems that the Lib Dem supporters and Green supporters, even a chunk of UKIP supporters, um, kind of rode in behind a Labour Party. Yeah. Which, again, raises a question for me, whether it's that belief in Labour or whether, although you, I think you alluded it wasn't this case, whether it was the tactical decision, which is, look, we just want to keep the Tories out this time. Um, which I just, I'll throw in a story my local constituency. I know people who would have voted Lib Dem or Green and thought, well, now we just can't risk this. We're going to vote Labor, uh, who proceeded to then romp home with 77% of the vote. Yeah. So it, it worked well, very well tactically. You can't say there's not enthusiasm, okay, because you're looking at Labor increased its vote the most in seats that were already Labor held. Okay, yeah. so it, it's, it, and that's mainly because of, probably mostly because of, of, of those, those kind of people. Um, so it, I, I don't think you could say it's all, it's people reluctantly turning out. It's you know you look at some of these seats. There is, it's okay. It's enthusiasm for uh, you know. The, yeah. It is it is an anti-Tory vote in some respect, I but it's the unification of of that that you know why I say it is a kind of progressive alliance is that there are more voters in that block. It seems because of more young people turning out, um, and. Uh, they're more concentrated, they're more unified behind the Labour Party. Yeah. And that's why, why you know, you, you get this outperformance of expectations. I don't, I don't see what the avenue is for Lib Dems, really, no. um, to, to go anywhere at the moment. Mm. And unless we clone Caroline Lucas across a couple hundred constituencies, the same mm. goes for the Greens, I'm mm. afraid, yeah. Okay, we've, we've, we've been at this a while, as it merits, because it's a big, big discussion, but I want to I give us one more question before we get to the end. And that's about prediction, um, because we... Uh, the dark know, art. Right. Like, clearly, this is yet another instance of there being a conventional wisdom that expects one thing, including the class of people whose notional expertise is to know about that thing, um, and then it not happening, like events contradicting widespread expectation. 
And therefore, you know, the immediate response of many people is to say, all of these experts were either like sinister ideological conspirators uh, aiming to lie about the chances of this uh, of this result, um, or else inept and hubristic uh, fools who believed that they had insight into things that they didn't, and we shouldn't listen to experts ever again. Um, so I suppose I wanted to ask us what we what we think about that. And I won't be coy. Uh, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I think first, and then I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are. But I think it's partly a problem of how we like, frame these kinds of conversations about, about like, what it means to predict and be right. Like, you can say that you think something's going to happen in the future, and you can have a reasonable basis for that, or you can have no reasonable basis. You can have evidence uh, or uh, uh, no evidence. You can have a good case or a bad case. And then like, events will happen, and they may or may not coincide with what you said would happen. But like a baseless punt that happens to coincide with reality is, I still think, a lot worse than an evidence-based reasonable argument that you expect something that turns out not to fit reality. The only reason why it seems worse and sometimes is worse is if you take your reasonable expectation with evidence behind it and then overstate it as absolute certainty about what you think is, is going to happen. Because, like Case in point, what we had here, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was running on a strategy predicated on the idea that a very large number of people in an age group uh, that normally votes uh, less than others was going to turn up and vote for him, and if he did, everything was going to be fine. Um, so, you know, here's the thing, though. People have been saying they're going to do that in loads of elections throughout mm -hmm. history. It happens all the time. That's been a hundred people's strategy. They've all failed. This time, it did actually happen. People did actually show up. But like, the right way to frame that would be to say... Like, Jeremy Corbyn's team had a hypothesis that they were going to try and do an unlikely thing that many have tried before. And if they succeeded, then they would be in gravy. But if what reasonable expectation would tell us based on history happened, then they would not. And so we should have, I suppose, if we were being totally dispassionate, said it will be really interesting to see if this unlikely thing happens. And now it has happened. We price it in and revise our expectations and so on and so forth. But what's annoying, I think, like, like what's equally obnoxious to people you know, who were overstating the case and saying, oh, Jeremy Corbyn has absolutely no chance, don't be ridiculous, before the election, is people who would now look back and say, like, I knew, I knew <laughs> that Jeremy Corbyn absolutely had a great chance in this election, that all those young voters were going to turn out, that these policies are super saleable to the British electorate. You absolutely did not know that. It was like a, an outside bet. It was a contingent hypothesis. Events have happened to vindicate it, and, you know, more power... Uh, more power to you for having your side do well. But that's, if you believe that, that, that you knew, then you're just going to replicate the habits of the people you're now laughing in the face of next time round by pontificating a bunch of false certainties. What we all need to start doing, I think, to make this debate healthier is to just start framing things in terms of like the, the reasonable basis and or the likelihood of possible things that might happen yeah. and then wait and see rather than having these gladiatorial combats about... like false statements of certainty about what will and won't happen and then giving people dunces hats and gold stars based on you know 
had, there were a lot of people who thought Jeremy Corbyn was going to do great who still know a lot, a lot less about this and had a lot less basis for thinking that than people who didn't think that. I wonder what you think of, I wonder what you think of uh, 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 my recommendations for the improvement of British political science discourse. You, get me, look, you got me started now because you didn't realize this. <coughs> I got even more of a bugbear about this than you did. I'll tell you the people who understand predictions and have been very well, and that's bookies. <laughs> now, bookies will tell you when they set up, they set up what the most likely outcome of a race is going to be. But the reason why bookies make money is not because it always falls that way. They make money because it doesn't fall that way quite a lot of the time, and they understand that, right? And if you had bookies that were coming in here, they could have taught you on this, which is... But if only favorites ever win, then you're out of business. <laughs> exactly, right? And they make money because there's, you, know, you cannot predict this as a certainty, and no one actually is making a prediction as a certainty. I'm wound up about this because I heard this over Trump, right, where it was with a possibility he would win. Anybody who was not messing around would have told you it was a possibility, albeit a minority possibility. Guess what? The minority possibility happened. With Brexit before that, it was a very close polling all the way up there. There's no way you could say that the pollsters missed what happened in Brexit when it was a 52-48. This time, there's a YouGov, YouGov a few days before the election which, and this I think is where we could have a more productive discussion, is who this time went constituency by constituency in their polling. They got the outcome almost exactly right. Mm. And they predicted that it would be a hung parliament, although a lot of people were skeptical about it. Um, it was always a possibility with Corbyn closing, with Labor closing, that this was an outcome, albeit one that we didn't think was the most likely possibility. Mm -hmm. But what happens is when people then go in and trash the pollsters, they're just shooting the messenger, which is, oh, well, you know, this is terrible. Because you shoot the messenger, which then says they got it wrong, which then absolves you of the challenge to explain what exactly happened here. So it's a shell game. But, you know, I'll stop being angry for the moment. All of the above, plus, <laughs> I think the, the general, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very simplistic truism to say, but the general political environment is such that we, we because let's acknowledge that we're part of the expert class, are driven to make very decisive statements in a short period of time. So, you know, Adam, your, your proviso that under certain conditions, perhaps if we blah, 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 your listeners have tuned out about five seconds into what you're saying, right? So the system drives you in a particular way. The system and the game of saying I am an expert and this is what I put forward. So we also need to hold ourselves a little mm -hmm. bit more accountable, I think, as a general rule, to, to add a sweeping statement to this. But it's, it's very frustrating, don't you find, that when you do media-type work, right? Like yeah. you go in and your head is full yeah. of rich contextual knowledge yeah. about the situation. And they say, you tell me what you need so to know in 30 gonna, seconds. Yeah. And they go, so what's going to happen? Yeah. And you're like... Dude, that, that is the one thing I can't tell you. I can tell you so many things about this election or these set of political events. The one thing I absolutely cannot tell you is what's going to happen. But, but that's not, always the sole thing that you would like to ask. But me not all of us uh, have the courage or are able to kind of finesse the context such that we can say, I cannot tell you this. Oh, I don't say that in to all. I just, no, I just, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so you're complicit in this game, right? So... Mm -hmm. Up to my neck in it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, look, again, all of the above. I mean, you know, 
if I could tell the future, I'd be living in a tower like Biff Tannen, you know, with my name on it. <laughs> I wouldn't be sat here. Like that, so, like, 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 like that, that other guy. Yeah, Notor- yeah. Notoriously unpleasant fictional character. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, That's how I'd like to live. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, what you, what, this is absolutely correct, okay? Uh, I think it's probably too late. Everybody <laughs> thinks posters are idiots. Anybody who uh, claims to know anything about British politics doesn't. Um, certainly academics are idiots people already thought that now they uh, can prove it Uh, but prediction I think is not what we should be doing I don't think it's part of what the social sciences are there for uh, or it's not the main thing social sciences are there for retrospective analysis is the thing that we can do uh, and people should probably uh, try and do a bit more of that Um, I think you know as far as British politics goes one of the problems we've got at the moment is that there are really no experts in British politics at the moment because all of the unwritten laws are out the window and the past is no guide to the future. So everything that we have established over time in British politics about what matters, okay, whether it's perceptions of leaders, whether it's perceptions of economic competence, whether it's uh, rates of turnout in different demographics, whether it's uh, how much campaigns matter, how much manifestos matter, the role of the print media versus social media. We don't know what the rules are about how those things work at the moment. No one does. So if you're commenting on British politics, you don't have very much to go on at the moment. Your predictions are going to be, uh, or should be, surrounded by very wide confidence intervals uh, if you're going to still insist on making predictions. Um, and, you know, I think prob- that idea in an ideal world, attaching probability to statements rather than here's what, uh, you know, the poll says and that definitively is what's going to happen uh, would be a better way to do it. I don't think it's going to solve the problem. I don't think people uh, are ready to hear that. It's too long an explanation. You know, if the weatherman says there's a 40% chance of rain and it rains... You know, I don't know if people know how to react to that. Okay, so if you're saying that there's a 40 percent chance of this outcome and then it happens, I'm not sure how people will react. So I don't know that the narrative can be shifted at this point. It's just happened too many times. You go fair play to them. They did what you should do if you're a responsible social scientist, which is to try and adjust your models. You have a hypothesis, you test it against the real world, then you go back and adjust. But no one cares about that. The pollsters don't know what they're talking about. It's a load of rubbish. Bookies do know what they're talking about, even though all bookies do is look at the polls and then set the odds. <laughs> <to that. laughs> so it's it's too late for that. But it, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, people who are social scientists and academics can't do our job better, even if no one in the outside world gives a damn. <laughs> well, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Polar Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can leave us a rating uh, in one, two, five stars and or a comment. That helps other people discover the podcast, so we're very grateful if you did. Um, you can also share us on social media. Take this episode wherever you found it. Post it on Facebook or on some other social media platform that I'm too old and or set in my ways to even know exists. Cause 
say, hey, I listened to this thing, and they really, um, they really tore a new one for whatever ideas or, or uh, political figures I find distasteful. Uh, you can come and like us on our uh, Facebook page as well, facebook.com forward slash pollworldview, where you can get links to the show, comments, etc. Our participants today have been Kristala Yakinthu. Where can people find you? They can find me at Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. I had a minor panic attack internalised just then that I might forget how to spell my surname. <laughs> that day is coming. Yes. At one time it will, it will in fact happen. Well, we've staved off the dementia tax, so, you know, I'm okay for a little bit longer. Yeah, if you, if you started now, then you would run down your assets pretty comfortably before death, I would, I would think. Uh, Scott? Well, I can say there's an 85% chance you would have spelled your name correctly. So I'm glad I've predicted that one. Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. Uh, the Scott Lucas in Birmingham, UK on Facebook. And at Political Worldview's partner, eaworldview.com, which will include a vast collection of election videos and podcasts where you can test what we said before the election mm-hmm. and see if it actually has come about it's afterwards. Elite, then. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, where can people find you if they're seeking to compile a dossier on your uh, inept uh, dropping of professional ball? Yeah, well, you can see all my predictions for the uh, <laughs> autumn 2017 election on my uh, Twitter page, which is at Mark R. Goodwin. And I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I am on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but I don't spend most of my time there. I'm also Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, standing next to Lyndon Johnson in the photograph. Um, we'd like to thank the Alumni Impact Fund of the University of Birmingham for their generous support of this podcast. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department of the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope the country uh, will still be here, and therefore that you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.